This is a spoiler light podcast. In this episode, I shall be revealing some aspects of the plot. My aim is to tell you enough about the film to intrigue you to watch it, but not enough to ruin it. However, the choice to continue, or not, is yours. Welcome to the Retro Podcast Massacre, a virtual video library in which we remember horror films from the VCR era. My name is Val, and I shall be your helpful assistant. Let me escort you to our horror section. Hello, willing participants. Tonight I'll be talking about the 2001 film Session 9. This film stars Peter Mullen and David Caruso. I should perhaps warn you that this film terrified me, and even in thinking about it, I can feel my hair starting to stand up and my flesh creep. Or is that just eczema? One moment, I shall administer ointment. No, no, it's definitely the film. This is an apparent tale of the supernatural, so if you are going to watch this film, you must do so in a darkened room. Arm yourself with a nice cup of tea and a pet for protection. I have two such cats for this very purpose. They are named Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. This is because they are, for the most part, refined gentlemen, but they occasionally like to frighten the crap out of me by clawing their way up the side of the bed at three in the morning. This is why I am never going to name any of my cats after Gunnar Hansen. Fuck knows what a cat like that would do to a pigeon. But I digress. Because I am me, I'm going to start by talking about something seemingly irrelevant. Bear with me. In his book, Dance Macabre, Stephen King describes the 1979 version of The Amityville Horror as a financial horror story. He was referring to the fact that, at one point in the film, the house just eats a big wad of cash, just disappears it on the back of a possessed couch or something. King suggests that the true horror of the film is not so much in having Satan as a roommate, it's the fact that the house is like a supernatural money pit. This is why people in possessed house films never move out. They can't afford to. I mean, blood coming out of the walls is scary, yes, but official letters from the bank are just terrifying. That is what I think Stephen King was saying. I think Session 9 is kind of in similar territory. It is that rare thing, a blue-collar horror film, a working-class ghost story. It tells the tale of a group of five men hired to clear asbestos from an old building. If they manage to do it in just one week, an almost impossible task we are told, then they will get a $10,000 bonus. This film takes place over the course of that week, with the financial pressure building and the countdown clock inexorably ticking down to Friday. I mean, that's a setup we can all appreciate. If you've ever had outstanding bills, or are working like a bastard trying to get the money together for a deposit on your house, then you will right away identify with these five men. However, 
There's something I've neglected to mention. The old building I spoke of earlier is the Danvers State Hospital, an asylum for the disturbed now long abandoned. But something of the nature of the building prevails despite the lack of inhabitants. The exterior of the building looms over the five ill-prepared men. Its windows are impassive black pools, its towers intimidating and imposing. It dominates the serene landscape, the carefully maintained grounds, the nearby wood, and the adjoining cemetery for long-deceased inmates. Holy fucking shit, this is some scary crap. Katie Miller, some scary music if you please. Oh fuck off Katie, I said scary. I'm trying to freak these bastards out here. Oh, that is so much better. I feel just like Aaron Mankey from Lore. Danvers State Hospital was an actual abandoned asylum, and perhaps something of this building leached into the mind of actor and writer Stephen Geverdon when he wrote this screenplay. It certainly inspired writer H.P. Lovecraft, who based his famous Arkham Sanitarium on this very building. The history of Danvers is not pleasant. It was opened in the 19th century in the hope that those sent there would find a haven of kindness. Trained doctors and nurses would treat inmates humanely, but of course that all turned to shite quite quickly due to lack of funds. Overcrowding led to neglect. Neglect led to abuse. Those inside lived in squalor and filth, many of the inmates sleeping in the labyrinthine tunnels that lay beneath the hospital. If that wasn't hellish enough, the town of Danvers itself has a history, for its name was not always Danvers, but Salem. The infamous witch trials actually took place there. It was this history of the town and of the building which inspired Stephen Giverdon to write this screenplay. If you are in a fanciful mood, you could almost claim that Danvers co-wrote this film, and it is in this setting that our five protagonists find themselves for just one week. The team are led by a Scotsman named Gordon, played by the wonderful Peter Mullen. He seems a good man, a hard-working new father, and if he seems a little tired and a little depressed, this is because his marriage and his finances have been strained by the arrival of the new baby. This new job, he feels, will fix everything. Alongside Gordon is Phil, played by David Caruso. Phil's relationship with his girlfriend has just broken down completely, and he retreats to the drugs, to the Mary Jane, to the ganja, to the Dutch broccoli, to try and dull the pain. There is an unspoken tension between Gordon and Phil. Gordon is worn out by work and by family pressures. Phil is more assertive, more aggressive. While he theoretically works for Gordon, you get the idea that he believes things are the wrong way around. A lot of Session 9 is about the dynamic between these two men, with Phil attempting to assert more control, and Gordon steadfastly refusing to relinquish any of his dwindling authority. Then there's Hank, a compulsive gambler with a mean streak and a way of getting into people's heads. Hank goads Phil, whose girlfriend he has just stolen. He also taunts Jeff, 
a young man with an unfortunate mullet who is Gordon's nephew. Jeff is just entering the world of work and is unsure of himself. Hank takes it upon himself to be Jeff's mentor, and he abuses that position to its fullest. Hank tells Jeff, in gloating detail, what would happen if just one molecule of asbestos should find its way into Jeff's lungs? How it would sit there, while his body's defenses attacked it, only instead of being destroyed, those defenses would cause a malignancy to grow in Jeff's chest until it choked the life from the unfortunate young man. Jeff, you can tell, is a bit freaked out by this. And let me tell you, so was I, sitting on the couch with Vincent Price purring on my lap. Also, did I mention that Jeff has a paralyzing fear of the dark? Pay attention, willing participants. That might just come up again later in the film. The final member of the five is Mike. He is the underachiever of the group. He had hoped to become a lawyer, but it didn't work out. Due to his knowledge of criminal law, he knows some of the history of Danvers and of the inmates. He tells the others of Mary Hobbs, a woman who murdered her entire family after years of alleged satanic abuse, and of the rumours that there may have been more to her case. So that is a lot of information for you willing participants. Let me briefly summarise. We have Gordon, owner of the business and struggling in his marriage. Phil, hair-trigger temper with a reason to loathe Hank. Hank, a loudmouthed bully and a gambler. Jeff, young, terrified of the dark. And Mike, a frustrated lawyer who finds a cache of tapes in the basement, which may have relevance to the Mary Hobbs case. Oh, wait, now, did I not mention the tapes? Mike finds the psychiatric notes for Mary Hobbs, accompanied by recordings of all of her sessions. He starts, naturally enough, at session one. See, I bloody love that. I love a film that has a built-in countdown clock. This film helpfully points out every time Mike progresses from the session one tape to session two, session three, and so on. The director lets us know early on from the turn of this piece that things are going to end badly, and so every time we see a new session number on screen, it is like moving down another circle of hell. It is fiendishly clever. Then there's the look of this film. The director, Brad Anderson, explained that he and his crew had to do very little with the interior of the asylum. It just came creepy to start with. As a result, this film has a unique look to it. The interior is an ocean of beige and brown. Shafts of light break through the windows to pick out detritus on the floor. There are broken dolls, abandoned medical instruments, old magazines, and layers of dust. When Gordon enters this building, he hears a voice in his head. It is a human voice, but it sounds wobbly. It sounds dense. It's not quite right. It's like a voice captured on tape decades ago. The film never says if the other members of the team also have voices in their heads. What we do know is that something has got inside each of the men, like a speck of asbestos. Their normal behaviour is amplified and perverted. They get on each other's nerves. They argue. And this is the meat in the horror sandwich that is Session 9. Like all the best ghost stories, 
The malevolence isn't some hideous vision that looks like Marilyn Manson or Piers Morgan. It's more insidious than that. It exploits the weaknesses of the five men. It breaks them down and splits them up. It sets them against each other. Let's take Caruso's character Phil, for example. He just feels dangerous. He speaks so calmly and with such cold logic, but there's something behind those eyes, a simmering anger, something that made me feel as if I couldn't predict what he might do next. I really feel I need to say something about David Caruso here. He takes a lot of shit as an actor, mainly because of his role in CSI Miami, but when he's got great material, he's great. And he's generous too. He really allows Peter Mullen to shine in all of their scenes together. Meanwhile, Peter Mullen is just so good. Even when he's smiling, he looks like he's on the verge of tears, as if he could choke back the sobs behind a rictus of bared teeth. He plays a man on the edge of an emotional breakdown so well. You know, willing participants, I wonder if the location got into the actors' heads when they were making this film. I mention this because they all give terrific performances, as if the cast themselves were channeling an energy that makes every scene crackle with anxiety. And here's another question for you, willing participants. Will the location affect you too? Will you feel different after watching this film? Will Danvers leave its residue on you as well? You cannot tell, because this is an audio podcast, but I'm holding a torch under my chin right now. Trust me on this, it is really fucking spooky. Ah, please yourselves. The other joy of Session 9 is the story itself. By the end of the film, I was in wonder at how all the pieces fell into place so neatly. All of the things you'll see, and all of the things you'll hear are significant. Even though the story is presented in a non-linear way, it will all make sense in the end. And when the tale is told, when the story is done, you will find yourself wondering if there ever was a ghost at all. Session 9 is a film that does not have a big enough reputation, in my opinion. It is an amazing ghost story, with a wonderful setting and an oppressive atmosphere. A lot of the credit is due to director Brad Anderson. His camera really helps bring the asylum to life. His camera moves around the actors in such a way as to bring the background into frame, almost as if the asylum is sneaking up on the men. The staircases, the graffiti, disturbing collages, they just seem to appear, peering over the shoulders of the actors. And as a final note on Anderson's direction, I would like to add that this film features the best performance by an electrical generator since that horrible one in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You'll see what I mean. As you may have noticed, I like this film a lot. The real horror in Session 9 lies in how ordinary the characters are. I started out by saying that this is a blue-collar horror story, and all of the screws that get turned in this film are everyday ones. Marriage troubles, financial worries, relationship breakups, and fears for your health. Session 9 takes normal anxieties and forces you to look right at them, and to be stronger for having faced them. You see, this is the part of the podcast where I attempt to rationalise watching horror movies by claiming it makes horror fans more psychologically healthy. It's worth a shot. Having said all of that, if you are an avid gorehound, you may find the slow ramp-up of tension in Session 9 does not provide you with enough thrills. I get it, and if you're not into atmospheric horror, 
and I'm only telling you this so that your expectations will be set accordingly. However, despite this, I'm going to give Session 9 a 5, both as a horror film and as a film. It is a wonderful thing, this dark meditation on the mundane daily pressures of regular life, amplified to the point of madness. I have read that, because this film is a very testicle-heavy affair, that this film is more relatable for male audiences. I am clearly unqualified to speak on behalf of women. Suffice to say that, if you have ever held onto a secret, or a regret, or a grudge, then I expect that you too will be able to put yourselves into the hazmat suits of the protagonists. These are men whose secrets poison them every bit as effectively as asbestos. And don't we all have secrets? When critics talk about Session 9, the film they most often reference is The Shining, which in itself is incredibly high praise. It does share that film's doom-laden atmosphere, that steady drip of dread, that background pounding of evil with which Kubrick imbued his film. But I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that in my opinion, this film actually surpasses Kubrick's partly because the characters are more relatable, and the film is therefore more unpredictable. Let's face it, we all knew at the start of The Shining that Jack Torrance was the one we had to watch out for. This film features four potential Torrances, and then puts them in the dark. Together. For that reason, this is one of those supernatural horror films that goes beyond the creepiness of the setting, and the darkness of the events. This film left me wondering if I was still halfway in the world of these five characters. Long after the credits had rolled and the screen turned to black, I sat, and I wondered if my real-life anxieties might manifest themselves in the dark corners of my house. This was not helped by the fact that my cat, Peter Cushing, has a habit of staring fixedly at nothing, as if there is something right there behind me. Stop it, Peter Cushing. It's not funny. Sodding cats. Speaking of real-life horrors, I can tell you now that most of Danvers State Hospital was torn down in 2007. The site is now home to luxury condominiums. But look, if Satan's snot starts squirting out of your light fittings, don't blame me. You brought it on yourselves, condo residents. I hope your insurance policy covers portals to hell in the toilet. As for you, willing participants, thank you for your company tonight. I've enjoyed myself, and I hope you enjoyed listening to my unmitigated shite. Join me again next week, when I'll be discussing the 1992 television play Ghostwatch. I'll be explaining how it mentally scarred an entire generation of British people, and why children's TV presenters cannot be trusted. But for now, please seek out Session 9. I do hope it frightens the fuck out of you. But don't say I didn't warn you. Good night. The Retro Podcast Massacre was recorded in Wellington, New Zealand. Your host was Val Thomas. This episode was produced by Katie Miller. If you have any requests, comments, or if you just want to say hi, you can tweet us at Podcast Massacre, or you can find us on Facebook or Instagram. Finally, if you like this podcast, spread the word. 
rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you source your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and pleasant dreams. <laughs>